0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great to be with you, City on a Hill. Can we thank the Lord once again for Dave and the band? They led us so well. So good. Uh, If you're new or visiting, my name is Guy. Joy and privilege to serve as the pastor of City on a Hill, uh, a movement of churches now of nine, almost ten, united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Uh, Today, we are at week two in a seven-part series looking at the seven signs of Jesus, the seven miracles uh, of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. To begin, uh, I want you to imagine uh, a father and a young boy uh, standing by a lake. And let's say the young boy is about five years of age. And you can see him there with some bread in his hand. And he's feeding the ducks who are swimming up to him on the waters of the lake. When out of the corner of his eye, he sees this large, white, beautiful swan. He's never seen one before and he's a little bit frightened at first and so he looks to his dad for reassurance and his dad smiles and holds his hand and says, it's fine, it's good. And so the little boy continues to to feed and to to throw some bread onto the water before this white swan. And then as he's there, the little boy, as little boys like to do, asks questions of his dad. He says, a swan's always this big? And his dad says, yes. And he says, the swans always like to eat bread? And he says, well, I suppose they do. And then he asks another question about the colour of the swan. Do do swans always have white feathers? Now it's a pretty simple and obvious question. You're probably here and you're like, well yeah of course, swans are white and swans are black. But you need to ask yourself a question and consider two facts. Where are we in this story and what time of history are we in? Because if this little scenario, this little story was in the 16th century and the lake was in London, then the father would have said with great confidence, son, all swans are white. And that's because at that time in history, the only ever recorded sightings of swans were that they had white feathers. In their worldview, there was no such thing as a black swan. In fact, The idea of a swan, a black swan, uh, goes all the way back to the second century where a poet established the idea of a black swan as a metaphor for something that was impossible. If something was considered impossible or it didn't exist, it was considered a black swan, like an honest politician or uh, a vegan who doesn't tell you they're a vegan or uh, a Collingwood supporter who has all their teeth. That, <laughs> anything you thought was impossible was deemed a black swan. Of course, that was turned off, uh, up on its head. Let me just check the year. Uh, what year was it? Uh, 1697. 1697. Dutch explorer is in Western Australia looks out over the waters, and what does he see for the very first time? A black swan. Incredible! That which he thought didn't exist was standing there before his very eyes. Um, uh, This miracle of the black swan uh, is explored, and I'm sure many of you have read uh, the writings of uh, Nassim Taleb, who introduces the idea of the black swan theory. And the black swan theory is used to describe any event in history that was deemed unexpected, unprecedented. Uh, whether we're discussing the rise of the internet or the Wall Street crash in 1929, uh, Nassim describes a black Swan event as having three defining uh, qualities. Uh, It's an outlier, uh, it has a huge dramatic impact, and yet when you look closely at it, you can see patterns and explanations pointing to its reality. Today we're at week two in a seven part series looking at the seven miracles of Jesus. Seven miracles that disrupt this world and shake up what we think is possible. And I appreciate that whenever we talk about signs and wonders, whenever we talk about miracles, whenever we approach a series like this, uh, it's it's, it's easy for us to kind of bring to mind our our own doubt and, and skepticism. And I get that. Right? I've met many people who, who can appreciate the teaching of Jesus, and, and, but when they hear about his miracles, they struggle to believe. We meet these things with skepticism and doubt, and that skepticism and doubt can be owing to the, to the family that we were raised in. Uh, it can be owing to a scientific worldview that kind of clings to the natural laws of the universe. Uh, It can also be owing to our own personal experience, that perhaps we've never experienced a miracle in our own life, and therefore we assume that miracles can't happen. And I want you to know that the doubts and and skepticism are welcomed at this church. Uh, One of the things I love about City on a Hill is that this is a church that's willing to ask the big questions and, and eager to kind of pursue and discover the truth, But as we do this together, let me encourage you to be open to the possibility. Let me encourage you that that what we're going to encounter here in John's gospel, these seven signs, isn't just a case of make-believe and, you know, that you could just explain away. But actually what we have here is what we might now call a series of black swan events, events that change the course of human history. Today, we're looking at the second sign in John's gospel. And if you've got a Bible handy, why don't you grab it and come with me to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some that you can take with you. Uh, You could look to the person on your left or your right, or we've got the the words on the screen above as well. So John chapter 4 sets the scene for this miracle in this way. Check it out. Verse 46. He says, so he, that's Jesus, came again again. To Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Now, in setting the scene for the miracle, look at the text and notice that John is writing out for us a few details just to help set the scene for us. For example, uh, he's telling us that he came again to Cana in Galilee. Does anyone know where Jesus was just before this verse? Anyone? Yell it out? Bueller? Samaria, right? He he he'd been, spent a few days with his disciples in Samaria, where Jesus has that transformative encounter with a woman by the well, right? She's transformed by Jesus' insight and, and, and prophetic edge and, and so much so that people in the town were eager to see Jesus, uh, were coming out to hear Jesus teach. In fact, John tells us that many people believed in Samaria, right? So he has this amazing ministry time. And yet now, John says, he's come again to Cana in Galilee. And, and that's interesting because Galilee, Galilee is where? That is, it's Jesus' hometown, right? Galilee is where Jesus grew up, it's where he went to school, it's where he learned how to drive, it's it's his hometown. And and that's interesting because Jesus himself said that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. So you have this contrast in the text where uh, Samaria welcomed Jesus and believed in Jesus and now he's coming to, to Galilee where people are a little bit suspicious about this son of a carpenter. But if we look at this text, just keep it up there for a moment, there's another detail which now John is really spoon-feeding for us. He says he's coming back to Cana in Galilee, which is where he had turned the water into wine. Right? Who was here last Sunday and heard uh, Ben Hewitt preach? Yeah, he did a great job. Uh, ben, as many of you know, a uh, great guy. He's leading our most recent church plant in Ballarat. And, and we looked at this text where, where Jesus turns up to a wedding. The bride and groom, they run out of wine. And, and, and what does Jesus do? He steps on in with, with, with a miracle. I was actually talking about this with the music team before. And like, what did you find insightful about this miracle? And Dave was talking about the joy in the scene. You know, sometimes when we think about, you know, Christianity or religion, you know, you think that there's no fun. And yet here's Jesus injecting the life, the fun into the party. It also shows that Jesus cares about the little things of life, right? Jesus enters in and he turns this water into wine. And, and, and as you might expect, this kind of uh, instigate starts a, a ripple effect. People start talking about it. I and mean, if you went to a party and someone turned water, you'd talk about it. And so people are sharing this news about Jesus, this Carpenter who turned water into wine, and and we know that news is spreading, because in the very next verse we we meet a man who's travelled two days on foot, forty kilometres, a couple of days. He travelled all the way from another town to Cana to see Jesus. Right? He's heard this news, and he, and he's come to check him out. So, verse forty-seven. Who is this man? It says, and at Capernaum there was an official. Whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Why? For he was at the point of death. What do we know about this man? We're not told his name, we're not told uh, what family he came from, we're not told what his religious worldview is. The one detail that John wants you to know is that he's an official. And some of your translations might have the word, he's a royal, right? Because actually in Greek, that's the closest associate, he's a royal. And that's not, he's part of the royal family. It just means that uh, he, he was working for the royal establishment, the Roman Empire. And in Galilee, that meant that he was a servant, uh, one of the kind of governing authorities for Herod, Anapas. Right? So, so what does that tell you about this man? Well, it tells you that he's a very disciplined man. It tells you that he's a very affluent and wealthy man. It tells you that this is a man with a lot of power. And yet whatever wealth and power this man has, it isn't enough to deal with his most pressing need. What is this man's most pressing need? John says, the official's son is sick. So sick that he says he was at the point of death. So sick he's at the point of death. Um, As a father myself, this story hits me in a very real way. Uh, I'm a dad. I've got four kids. And so when I meet somebody or read a story about someone who has a child who is sick and, and sick to the point of death? I'm I'm moved in a very uh, personal way. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, this time last week uh, to head to the Sunshine Coast with my youngest son, uh, Jacob. And uh, this is becoming something of a of a family tradition where once a year I'm taking one of my kids and uh, going to the Sunshine Coast just to spend a, a few days together. Um, to spend time together, one on one, to talk about life, to have some fun, and uh, Jacob, it was his turn this year. Jacob is in his last year of primary school, uh, which takes a lot of people by surprise because he's quite tall. Uh, he takes after his dad. Um, actually, uh, <laughs> Vanessa, my wife, measured us next side by side just two days ago. He's already taller than me. Grade six. And he's already taller than me. And he got to compete um, when we were in Noosa in in his first ever uh, triathlon. Uh, There he is there. And I don't know who was more nervous, him or me. Right? The night before, I couldn't sleep. Uh, before the gun goes, I'm counting down every second, and I can feel every stroke. I can feel every run. In in the last kind of lap as he's kind of finishing, I'm cheering and I'm screaming. I'm like, I'm one of those dads, right? And and were there any other kids out on the course? Maybe. Irrelevant to me, because all I care about is my son. I care about him. Uh, I want the best for him. Uh, I'll fight for him. Why? Because there is this unique bond that we have. And there's something special about that. Something that says to me that this father in the story in John's gospel was hurting, he was desperate for answers. He had watched his own boy. The official had watched his own boy come home from school one day and know that his boy was a bit off. And then there was a cough. And the cough turned into a fever. And the fever turned into a tremor. And and he's scrambling for answers. I mean, it doesn't tell us in this text, but I can guarantee you, he did everything he possibly could to try and help his boy. I'm sure that he called on the best doctors. I'm sure that he called on the you know, the, the best medicine. I'm sure that he tried anything and everything to try and, and save his boy. But he was running out of answers. And so at this point, you have to appreciate he's traveled a few days on a whim to give Jesus a shot. To give Jesus a, a shot. Listen, listen, At this point, he doesn't know what we know about Jesus. (laughs) He's never seen Jesus perform a miracle. He's never sat at the feet of Jesus' teaching. All he has were a few rumors about a guy in Cana who performed this water into wine trick. And he thought, you know what? I'm running out of solutions. I'm going to give... Jesus a shot. Isn't that cool? You you might be here today and and wrestling with something big in your life, and I know you are, and it may not be a a sick child, but there's something in your life, something that's like, ah, this is, I've tried this, I went to that person, I did that. What if you gave Jesus a shot? What if you took that journey and on a whim sought to give Jesus a chance? And yet, here's what's really interesting this man has traveled something like two days to get Jesus to help his sick son. But Jesus' response is very unexpected. Have a look in your Bible to verse 48. Right, so the, the man comes to, if we bring that on screen, yeah, the man comes to Jesus, I, I need help. But what does Jesus say to the official? He says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Uh, can I be honest with you? <laughs> this is not exactly the, ex- the response that I would expect from Jesus. Right? Like, you would expect that Jesus would immediately be moved with compassion. You'd expect that he would immediately, like, that's the Jesus I know. Instead, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That doesn't sound very Christian to me. So what's going on here? Is Jesus being a jerk? Or does Jesus know something that perhaps we don't know? Perhaps a clue here lies in the word you. Right? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe believe. Um, It's hard to pick this up in our translation, but in in the original text, the word you isn't singular, it's plural, right? So, he's not saying unless you, he's saying unless you, or as we Aussies might say, unless yous, right? Unless yous people... (laughs) Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Right? So, what's the point? This is not a, like a direct kind of shot at this official and his sixth son. It's a statement, a bigger statement about the nature of humanity. Right? Jesus knows people studies people, interacts with people. And one of the things he notes about people that we need to hear today is that we are a people who put conditions on our belief. We put conditions on our belief, right? And, 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 and you're not alone in that. We all do it. Uh, famous story in the end of John's gospel, uh, there's a guy named Thomas. And what do we call him? doubting Thomas. Why? Thomas witnessed all kinds of miracles of Jesus. Saw him walk on water, feed the 5,000, saw all of these things. And yet when Jesus dies, goes to the cross and rises again and his mates are like, you wouldn't believe it. Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. What does he say? What does he say? We bring it on up here. Thomas, I think we've got it here. There you go. uh, Thomas says to his mates, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. What's he saying? He's saying, I want proof. I need evidence. I need facts. I need to see it with my own eyes. I need to feel it. I need to touch it. And then... I'll believe. He's putting a condition on his belief. Ever felt yourself playing that same bargain with God? Right? Ever found yourself saying, I'll believe in you, God, if you can give me one sign. Um, I'll take you seriously. I'll start going to church more regularly if you answer me this prayer in a way that I know it was you. Um, is it wrong to seek a sign? Is it wrong to pray for a miracle? No. Actually, when it comes to doubting Thomas, Jesus appears to him in the midst of his doubt and gives him the proof that he needs. He's like, touch my hand, see my side. In other words, he gives him proof. And he does that all the time. He gives people evidence, hard evidence. He've got, we've got the Bible, which is full of all of these miracles and testimonies to help you believe. But do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas? He said, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not Seen. The point is not that it's wrong to seek evidence, only that the essence of faith belongs to those who take Jesus at his word. To believe him. There's blessing in those who believe in Jesus without putting a condition, without seeing the signs and wonders that others might have seen. What does that mean for the father in this story, the father in Cana. Verse 49, John says, the official official said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Don't you love the honesty and rawness of this moment? Right? The the official doesn't want to get into a debate about signs and wonders. He doesn't want to debate about Christology. He wants Jesus to help. (laughs) His son is sick, he's about to die, he needs Jesus to help. Does Jesus dismiss that prayer? Does Jesus dismiss us in our time of need? No. Verse 50, Jesus says to the man, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Live. Could you imagine standing in the presence of Jesus and hearing those four words? "Go, your son will live." I mean, these words would have mean the difference between death and life. Would have meant the difference between his mourning and the mourning of his household and community, and and the rejoicing. These words meant everything. And John says that. The man, the official, took Jesus at his word and then departed. Jesus says, Go, your son will live, and Jesus uh, and the man took those words, believed them, and departed. And I find that a curious point. Because we know that all the great miracles in the Old Testament and all the great miracle workers that you read about in the Old Testament, they all had to be there for the great miracle, the great act to happen. For example, Joshua had to be walking around the walls of Jericho for those walls to come down. Moses had to have the staff in his hand uh, to part those waters. In other words, miracles involve us not just saying things, but doing things, you got to be there, right? Proximity is the power. But the man in John didn't have any of that. He wasn't given a staff. He wasn't given a magic potion. No angel to accompany him. Jesus himself didn't even go with him. At this point, the man only has Jesus' word, his promise. Now, if this were a word from any other man, that would make us all quite uneasy. But one of the things you discover in the Bible is that God's word is powerful. One of the things you'll see all through the scriptures is the power of God's word. Uh, This world that we are in, this universe that we are in, Right, The atheist takes that huge leap of faith and says it came from nothing. The Christian believes that this world was created by God. God made the heavens and God made the earth. And how did God make this world? Well, the Bible tells us that God made this world with his word. Let there be light. And there was light. And do you see the connection between what God says and what he accomplishes? Right? That's different from us. I can say, yeah, I'll take the bins out Tuesday night. But that doesn't mean I'm actually going to take the bins out next Tuesday night. When it comes to us, sometimes there's a disconnect between what we say and what we do. But that is not so with God. What God says, he accomplishes. When he says, let there be light, there is light. There's power in his word. And so the real question that faces us in this part of the story is not so much, can God perform miracles? Because we know that if God exists, created this world, of course he can perform. The question is not, can God perform miracles? The real question is, Jesus God? The real question that you need to ask is, Jesus God? God, because I know there's lots of different views that we might have around Jesus. And if you say, yeah, he was a good man. Well, then if Jesus was just a good man, then the most that, this man could, the most that Jesus could offer this man is a nice shoulder to cry on. Comforting shoulder, if he's a good man. Uh, if he's a very wise man, you say, oh, Jesus is a very smart, intelligent, wise man. Well, the best that Jesus can do at this point is give him some good advice. Uh, You say, well, no, no, Jesus was very spiritual. Oh, he's a very spiritual guy. Well, at this point, the best that Jesus can offer this man is what? Thoughts and prayers. But what if Jesus is more than that? What if Jesus is not just a good man, not just a godly man, but is in fact the God man? Then that changes everything. And where does that leave our official? It has him on the crossroads of faith. I mean, Picture yourself in his shoes. He's given the word of Jesus. Go, your son will live. And now he's got to make a two-day trek home. And it does say that he took Jesus at his word. In other words, he, he believed Jesus. There was integrity in what Jesus said. But we also know from later in the story that there was another depth of belief that would come. That actually when he did see with his own eyes, he truly believed. What does that mean? It means he believed, but it also mean, meant he doubted. He believed and he doubted. He believed and he doubted, which I just think is the perfect picture of the Christian life. right I mean how many of you can relate to that? You, you, you read about a promise, you, you, you pray a prayer and, and you believe. You take Jesus at his word and yet all the time we walk with questions and doubts and levels of suspicion. Um, God welcomes us in that way. And here's what I, I need you to know. Salvation, healing doesn't hinge on the strength or the size of our faith, but the object of our faith. In other words, God's power isn't dependent upon us It's dependent upon Jesus. How many of you know that is good news? Right? It's not about your faithfulness. It's all about the faithfulness of Jesus. I actually heard this remarkable story um, about a pastor who serves in Chicago. And he's uh, a, a Christian but holds a view that the signs and wonders of God ceased at the end of the uh, Apostles. At the end of the Apostles, once the Bible was finished, uh, there are no more signs and wonders today. The school of theology is cessationist. They believe that it's ceased, right? There were miracles and wonders in the days of Jesus and the Apostles, but that's it, right? That's a a view out there. And that's what this pastor believed. And then he went preaching in uh, a rural town uh, village in South America. And... uh, He explains that at the end of his message, he prayed this prayer, which is a prayer that he would always pray. And he said out from the front, at the end of his sermon, Lord, we thank you for your word. If there is anyone here who needs to know your salvation today, Lord, in this very moment, let them give their life to you and save them, I pray. And if there is anyone who needs healing or comfort in their life, would you bring healing and comfort to them? That was the prayer he would always pray, and he was going through the motions praying this prayer. And as he's praying that, he hears this screech from the back of the church. This woman's yelling and and, and making all of this noise, and he keeps praying. He doesn't know what's going on. Eventually, he opens his eyes, looks up, and and, and people around this woman are, are, are pointing out the fact, and they're saying, She's been healed she's been healed. Turns out this woman had been blind for 70 years and yet in this service, as he prayed that prayer, the scales came off and she could see she had been healed, right? And so piece this together. Here is this pastor who doesn't believe in miraculous healings, who actually accidentally heals one. He says, an experience like that Will mess with your theology. Here's what I know you can't limit God based on what you believe. You can't box God in. God can't be contained to your theological system. He's God, He's powerful. He's infinitely bigger than anything we could ever think or imagine. He can do the miraculous. Are all healed on this side of heaven? No. Does faith in Jesus lead to a life free of suffering and disease? No. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek God believing in the impossible. Believing in the power of His name, trusting, as Isaiah said, that the arms of the Lord are not so short to save. Why not come to God believing in His power? We all have a file in our head of all the difficult things that are going on. What if you were just to kind of go through that file and bring out the most challenging thing that you're facing today and to give that to Jesus. Let's then look at this final section. John says, As the official was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will Live. If we bring that up, thanks. And he himself believed and all his household. And then note this little footnote. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. This was now the second sign. What is a sign? A sign is something that points you down the road. In other words, the miracles of Jesus are not just about the miracles themselves. The miracles are there to teach us something about Jesus. They're to teach us something about the nature of God, the power of God. They are pointing us. They're giving us a window to something to to help us see. So the question then is, what are we supposed to see from this miracle? Where is this sign pointing us? And there are a few things that we could explore here. And as I've reflected on it, one of the things that I see here is that Jesus is giving us a sign that is telling us the nature of his kingdom. That when he healed this little boy, he was giving us a keyhole into the nature of his kingdom, which we will one day see and know. That in the kingdom of Jesus, there is life. In the kingdom of Jesus, there isn't sickness. In the kingdom of Jesus, there is no disease, dementia, or death. In the kingdom that is to come, God will make all things new. And that's good news. If you put your trust in Jesus, you need to know that he will heal you. Now, that healing may not happen in this life, but I can guarantee you it will happen in the life to come because that's the nature of his kingdom. The devil, the Bible says, comes to kill, steal, steal and destroy. But Jesus came, why? That you'd have life. And so we who are in Jesus look forward to a day where all is made new. Right now, what do we have? We have his word. We have the promise, like the official returning home, who held on to the word of God, so we hold on to the word of God as we make our journey home. It's the nature of the kingdom. It's the nature of Jesus. This is why we worship him, because he's good and he's going to make all things new. The second and and, and final point, as the band uh, gets ready to come on up, is this sign, this miracle, points us towards His grace. This is a miracle that points us to the grace of Jesus. Why, why do I say that? Why do we, where do we see that in this story? Well, think about this man for just a moment, the, the official. Uh, who is he? He is wealthy and he is powerful. And that's interesting. I was talking to my my other son about this, Zach, and and he was highlighting to me that almost all of the other stories around Jesus involve him caring for the broken, the marginalized. In fact, we we, we sung a song earlier today, All the Poor and Powerless. But actually, this is a story about someone of power and privilege. And not only that, uh, he was working in the courts of Herod and, and if you, just in case you're not familiar with your history, Herod was a nasty piece of work, right? Herod's the guy. They weren't just exploiting people for their own financial gain. Herod's the guy who had John the Baptist's head cut off and put on a plate for his stepdaughter, right? He's a nasty piece of work, and this official works for him. And so you piece this together. You could expect, actually, that Jesus would tell this guy to, to nick off. You could expect that he would say, mate, you're getting what you deserve. You've been treating all of these people bad. You've been bossing people around. Go your way. I mean, that's what karma would say, right? And I know Aussies love karma. Karma is this doctrine that you get what you deserve in life. But that's why we don't sing amazing karma, because it's not great. We sing what? Amazing grace. In karma, you get what you deserve. In grace, you get what you don't deserve. How many of you write, look, I am familiar with my own sin, very aware of my own sin, and the many times I've stuffed up, fallen short, failed to do what's right, done things I shouldn't have done. Like, I've been an idiot. And one of the things that can stop my relationship with God is not, and and praying big prayers and asking for miracles, um, it's not so much, uh, you know, believing in His power. It's just being aware of my own sin. I can be aware of my sin and it holds me back. You know, I I can look around and I see people who have their lives together, or at least seems like they've got their lives together, they're neat and ordered and doing good. And I'm like, well, of course God's going to answer their prayers. Why would he answer my prayers when I've done this, been this? Take comfort in the grace of Jesus. Take comfort. That even though this royal, a royal official with his power and privilege and shady you know, friends, and Jesus loved him. Jesus served him. Jesus gave him a breakthrough in his life. That's the grace of Jesus. And it's a grace, right? Remember, this is a sign. It's a grace pointing to the fulfillment of his amazing grace on the cross. On the cross, do you know that Jesus went to a real Roman cross and was beaten and bloodied and bruised? Do you know that he suffered public humiliation? Do you know that they ridiculed him, spat on him, mocked him, taunted him? You know, this whole story in John 4 centers around a father and a son. A father who loves his son, who's desperate for his son, who would do anything for his son. And in this story, the son is spared. He's given life. But in the gospel, we see the father handing his son over. The son laying down his life. He wasn't spared from life. He walked into death. And he did it. So that all of my sin and junk and mess and all of your sin, junk and mess might be forgiven. That we might know true healing, true forgiveness, true life. That's the grace. That's the reason we pray and seek him out because we know he's good. We know he's powerful. God's Spirit is at work. Don't let this moment pass. Uh, We're going to have some people available for prayer and I want to encourage you to, to seize this moment. Just as the officials sought out Jesus, why not take this moment to seek Him out? And it could be that you're here and There's a situation in your life that feels beyond you. Maybe it is a sick child. Maybe it is a broken relationship. Maybe it is difficulty in a family. Maybe it is struggle with work. There's something that you know is beyond you, but it ain't beyond Jesus. And so faith says, Lord, would you help me? So maybe you want to pray that with some people next to you. There'll be people down here who'd love to pray that with you. It's not saying you need perfect faith. We all have doubts. We can stumble our way towards Jesus, but he wants to hear from you. And he wants to work in your life. It could also be that you're here and you're not yet a Christian. You've just been coming along to church. Maybe a friend brought you and that's awesome that you're here. I want you to know that Jesus loves you, died for you and rose for you. And that there is life and forgiveness and healing in him and in him alone. If you'd like to know what it means to follow Jesus, if you want to put your trust in him, I encourage you to come forward as well. Father, thank you for this room and the men and women here who you know and love by name. Meet us now by the power of your spirit that we may trust in you and worship you as our God. And pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.